Well, summer turn is here. Now that move out is complete, you are realizing you needed to order more replacement furniture. So what do you do now? ASU Furniture has you covered. Formerly known as Appalachian University Systems, AUS has been supplying universities and off-campus housing with great furniture for almost 30 years. They know the unexpected happens and keep inventory in their Birmingham, Alabama facility of many of the basic pieces like mattresses and beds that you need in your furnished apartments. Look them up at theasuway.com. Again, that's www.theausway.com. Com. And if you are a developer planning out your next student housing project, AUS is set up with in-house designers that can work with you and your architects to make sure the design concepts are extended to the fill and look of the furniture as well. Again, check them out at www.theausway.com. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. This is your host, Wesley Dees, and joining me today is special guest co-host, Chad Collins. Chad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Wes. Well, you know, I've had a lot of folks tell me that uh, over the past year that, you know, they're, they're really interested in understanding what's going on in the construction world, why are prices going up? And you and I know each other from a project that, that I'm consulting your company on and wanted to reach out to you and say, hey, Chad, <laughs> you know, who, who's who's somebody that we should talk to about what's going on with, with pricing and, and what's going on with the tariffs that the current administration has put in place and how that's impacting things. And uh, you immediately came up with, with Jenny Canoodles and with CEI out of, out of Nashville, who they've done a lot of student housing and kind of timely uh, when we started discussing this, she sent out a, a letter to her clients, letting her know about, you know, what's going on uh, or what has happened over the past year in regards to, to pricing and, you know, things that people need, to, that developers need to consider. So, so that's our interview today and we'll get to that in just a second, but really quick, Chad, kind of give us a, a background. Um, obviously you're working for a uh, university housing group based in, out of Roanoke, Virginia. You live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and you're their vice president of, of development and construction, but uh, give us a little bit of, of background on your background. Sure. I've been in construction for uh, over 20 years as a general contractor, education and civil engineering, and started out in, actually started when I was right out of high school building building custom homes and really working on site as a with the labor force, building houses, and went into more industrial construction after that. And then later after after college, I uh, went to work for some uh, larger commercial construction company, uh, spent 10 years there as a project manager building convention centers, uh, schools, all types of different projects. And then about 15 years ago, I got into the multifamily uh, market and I was vice president of construction for a developer out of uh, Charlotte and uh, built market rate multifamily apartments throughout the Southeast uh, there. Later after that, I started my own company doing construction management and consulting. Uh, and that's how I met uh, Wes Bradley and University Housing Group. So I worked with uh, with Wes as a consultant for a couple of years from about 
2015 to 2017 and then joined the company as vice president of development construction uh, back in 2017. So right now we've got a project we're finishing uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we've got two projects uh, that we're getting started this year, uh, one in Reno and one in Chattanooga. Yeah. So, it, I mean, you've seen kind of all the different industries and, and have really kind of seen the industry and, and ups and downs. As far as what we're in right now, have you ever seen anything like it in regards to that, the pricing jumps that we've had over the past year? No, I haven't. This is definitely the, uh, the, the worst I've seen as far as price increases go at any point. You know, it's sort of the opposite end of the, of the spectrum from the recession back in 2010, where there was no work to be found. Uh, now we seem to have the, the opposite effect of there's so much work going on that, you know, we've, we've got issues with labor. We've got uh, the tariffs and other issues causing uh, price increases. But, uh, no, I would say this is this is the worst we've seen uh, as far as price increases and really you know, no end in sight uh, from what we can what we can see right now. Yeah. So, and a couple of things we get you know into with Jenny and in our interview with her, and so I'll save some of that. But lumber alone, uh, you know, since since September of 2017 until the time of the recording about three weeks ago, which was kind of the first of July, I guess, 47 percent increase in lumber which is just, and, you know, she, uh, I think mentioned to me, or maybe it was you that said, Hey, it's probably going to be another 10% before the end of the year. You know, I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to construction pricing, but that was just something that, that blew my mind. I mean, anytime you've got that type of an increase on any type of, of product, you know, obviously that's going to put some, some strains on things, but here at the same time in this, you know, in this country, we're seeing, uh, you know, a continual kind of bounce back from, you know, the Great Recession. And we've got a lot of projects that are going on. So you've got this increase in materials from both steel and lumber. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, which impacts everything. But then on top of that, we've got a labor issue. And you forwarded me an interesting article, which I'll put in the, in the show notes so that others can go look at it. But, you know, the the trades, and we've talked about this on this on this podcast before there's a, a huge shortage in that. And just for our listeners, kind of give a summary really quick on what's happening with the labor force and, and why that's, you know, kind of creating this trifecta of perfect storm on, on construction costs right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, a big part of it is the, just the amount of projects that are being built across the country. We've made reference to the recession and one of the things that happened is uh, when the job started falling off and uh, guys needed a place to work, they left the construction industry to to go to other industries or other trades. And now that the construction boom has come back, a lot of those guys have not come back, guys and girls. Um, and, and from this article, it looks like there's around 140,000 vacant construction positions nationwide. And, you know, one of the problems is in, in a lot of cases you can find labor, but you can't find skilled labor. And, you know, a lot of that goes back to our schools and just the younger generation not looking at construction as a, as a viable career option. So that, that, I think that has a lot to do with it. And then, like I said, just the, just the number of projects that are being built and, 
uh, labor shopping from one project to the other. And you, you, you think you've got your labor figured out. And the next thing you know, they're packing up and, and moving to another project to make a, a little bit more money. So it's a continuing problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I, some of this is reading the tea leaves, and, and I hope our, our country, you know, kind of recognizes this. But uh, those those trade positions and the trade schools that are out there, you know, producing that skilled labor, I, you know, in some states, I know that there's been, you know, a huge push with that, and and you know, it's creating, you know, it's, it's given a lot of folks uh, options that they didn't have before. But I don't see the entire country really grasping that just yet. Uh, but I, I really hope if you're listening to this podcast and you're in the student housing industry, you really need to be looking at, at some of those trade schools like, you know, WyoTech is, is one that comes to mind. And I've got kind of a personal background with that because I worked on a project in Laramie, Wyoming, where both the University of Wyoming, Wyoming is at, as well as uh, WyoTech has their home base. And Property was about a 500 bed property, and it was pretty much half and half. And of course, WyoTech didn't have any on campus housing. And, you know, we were replacing a lot of carpet and a lot of furniture because, you know, these guys were breaking down motorcycle engines on their on their dining room table and on their on their coffee table. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about, you know, stay in tier one and the larger schools. And because a lot of people are having some, you have to be very strategic in smaller schools to really make sure that the right relationships and the right location is in place in order to be successful and sustainable in those, in those markets. I would really encourage developers to, to look at some of these trade schools as well, because they need help with that. And, it, you know, they're not, I don't think they're large projects, but if you can purpose build something that you know speaks to to what that student is is going through, for example, going back to Wyoming Tech, you know what would have made a lot of sense is a, a building that included some garage space that could be rented out or be part of the public amenity space, so that they could go in and work on these projects that they're working on. And so I, I would really encourage developers take a look at that because I feel like there's going to be in order to combat what's going on with um, with these constru- construction prices, the trade schools I think are going to become a very viable option for for students in the near future because I think it's starting to get everybody's attention of oh okay I can really make a living in that or at least get a <clears throat> at least get a skill that I can work for a few years and and then go into go into my own business or or you know what have you so. Anyway, <laughs> we're solving all kinds of problems here on on the Student Housing Insight podcast. Any other parting thoughts before we get into the interview, Chad? Um, no, I think uh, you know the interview is I think fairly detailed and, and talks about a lot of the problems that we're that we're dealing with on a daily basis, and it, it makes it really difficult to set budgets and and make really good uh, plans for your project. You know, we always, after doing this for so many years, one of the first things we want to do is look, go back to historical data on what, what did we spend on the last project for whatever line item it is in the budget. Unfortunately, now the the historical data is no good whatsoever. So we're sort of reinventing the wheel whenever we're putting budgets together now. And it's a, it's a moving target you're trying to hit. Yeah. 
Well, we'll go ahead and hit play on this interview and, and chat again. Thanks for working with me on this podcast. And I look forward to, uh, to having you back as we discuss other construction topics in the future. Sounds good, Wes. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, great. All right, guys, here's the interview. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Well, I appreciate you taking some time out to discuss construction pricing and tariffs and where everything is headed. But before we get into that, just give the audience a little bit of background, if you can, on, on both yourself and the company and the involvement you guys have had in student housing over the over the years. Be glad to. I, as you know, my company is Construction Enterprises Incorporated, but we're better known in the industry just as CEI, and we are a third-party general contracting firm. We've been building multifamily for over 40 years, and that is our specialty. We do market rate projects, student housing projects, urban, mid-rise, anything in the multifamily market area, and we build all across the country. We are a traveling contractor. We have kind of built our business model on working with clients that do repeat business, that build multiple projects, and we travel where they need us to go. That being said, that makes us prime uh, to serve the student housing industry. Many of our clients are merchant builders, right. and we, you know, <laughs> we go where they need us. And we've been building student housing as long as we've been in business uh, we've built good grief almost a billion dollars worth of student housing projects around oh i would say around 22 2300 uh, 23,000 beds and we've built from coast to coast right now we're actually building a project in corvallis oregon and then getting ready to start something in gainesville florida just turned over a couple of projects in Tallahassee, as well as in Mississippi, Oxford, and um, Starkville. So we've been pretty busy in the student housing market. It's been very good to us, and uh, we, we are thankful to be there. Well, and you know, you guys have got a, a great reputation from everything that I've heard. And uh, again, I appreciate you giving the time to, to be on the podcast today, as I know you guys are busy delivering a lot of projects and making sure a lot of projects are, are going to be delivered before students move in this year. So because of uh, because of that, I know this isn't a, a, an easy time for you to to, uh, you know, put 30 minutes on the on the clock to, to talk to us. But there's a lot going on in the construction world these days. You know, we've I got a letter from you uh, when we started talking about this podcast because it was pretty timely. It's something that you'd send out to all of your clients um, about the, the lumber and, and steel tariffs and, and the type of increase. Uh, I believe I'm quoting you correctly, but there's been a 47% increase uh, since September of last year of 2017. So, uh, you know, let, let's talk about materials first. What, what type of increases have you seen over the past year and what are those increases due to? I know tariffs is going to be a big one, <clears throat> but just walk through that for our, for our audience. So everybody has an understanding of, of what's driving that cost. Sure. Well, for us in particular, lumber is, is a big one. We don't, do high-rise projects, so most everything that we do is wood frame, 
So lumber is key to uh, to our market, and I I am just astounded at the rise in the price of lumber in particular over this past year. The lumber market always fluctuates. We have different times of the year where it uh, spikes a little bit and then it goes back down. And we usually can gauge that pretty well. But this past year has has been like nothing we've ever seen. A lot of it has to do with uh, the fact that we're getting so much lumber from Canada. And therein lies some of the trouble with the tariffs that are now uh, on the table and also supply. There, there's been such a high demand for lumber due to the multifamily market being so strong, both student housing and market rate. You also yeah. have the single family market that is- has Which is huge. Up. Exactly, and yeah. that's lumber that they need for that as well. So I think supply has been an issue. And again, like I said, the tariffs, lumber has, we keep expecting every week thinking maybe it'll go down a little bit. And actually last week it did just a tad, but when we get excited about that, the next week it spikes <laughs> right back up. So it has been it has been a challenge to say the least. Well, you know, I know this is, you know, trying to read the, the tea leaves, so to speak, but, you know, specifically with, with lumber, you know, is it is it a thing where the issue with the tariffs and then just, the supply and demand have just got to equal out before this changes? Or do you think there's something that uh, that is more immediate? Do you think that it's, you know, we're, we're kind of going to be settling into this for the next couple of years? Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it may be a combination of both. As with anything, when prices go up, then when they start coming back down, they never go all the way back down. You just don't, you just don't get it all back. So yeah. even when prices yeah, do just... come back down, they're still going to be higher than probably we want them to be. That being said, right. um, you know, the market is still strong right now. So what's the incentive for them to lower prices? Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of a catch-22. Uh, well, what do you see with, you know, we're coming in on the hurricane season. I mean, it's it's not even really started yet, and you know that always ends up causing you know just you know we just had a few bad storms last year, um, but they were just devastating to, to Texas and Puerto Rico. What do you specifically with lumber? What do you see happening for the rest of 2018? Any any predictions on how much further this will go up? My hope is that we have just about reached the the peak. Um, but but I'm I'm done making predictions. <laughs> I, mean, I, I you know we used to be able to give somebody a pretty good ballpark of, of where costs are going to be and feel pretty comfortable that that was going to hold you know six nine months a pretty good bit you know pretty good ways out. But it's just not possible to do that anymore. Because no one would have, a year ago, if you'd asked me that price, prices would be where they are now, I would have told you you were crazy. Yeah. So I very cautiously now tell people, you know, this is where prices are today, but I can't, I can't tell you where they're going to be 30, even 30 days from now. It, it's just that volatile. And as Chad knows, we, um, you know, we're working on a, on a deal together and 
it is, it's been a challenge to keep everything in line and we need to get that thing started quickly, Chad, so, so we can stop the bleeding here. <laughs> So, Chad, you've got projects going on across the country, as, as Jenny alluded to. Um, you're spread out from from Reno to, to Tennessee right now. What What is it like, you know, throughout the country? Is it? Uh, I'm sure it's probably not any better <laughs> than than what Jenny's alluded to. But anything from from your perspective, is there is there any other markets that are even worse because of maybe where that lumber is coming from? Uh, yeah, I think you know most of most of what I've built in the past has been here in the southeast, and you know we deal with the increases from time to time. As Jenny said, these are these are more than than we've ever seen, and I think the the supply and demand is is a big part of that. Just because every every major city you go into, there's tons of apartments being built, and even hotels are starting to go uh, wood frame. But um, our project that we have in Reno has seemed to have even more fluctuation in pricing. And, uh, you know, we're about to get a contract with the general contractor uh, there in Reno. And just trying to get to a final number has been probably one of the most difficult uh, processes that I've had in trying to start a pro- any project. And we're, in some cases, we're having to go to, go to contract <clears throat> with the knowledge that uh, for example, insulation uh, is, is projected to increase 9% per quarter, and they don't even put an end date on when that may stop. And for our project, that's around $50,000 a quarter, and the, the general contractor is not going to take on that risk. So we just, you know, it's one of those things we have to deal with as we get to it. And uh, and that's it's been across the board, and uh, especially in Reno. I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing it here with steel, and even last year when the the hurricane that uh, hit around Houston, I ended up getting letters from uh, PVC Charlotte Pipe was sending letters out because uh, we didn't realize, but Charlotte Pipe has two major PVC plants uh, right by Houston that were impacted by the hurricane. Mm-hmm. So any of those things uh, obviously affect the price. And then you throw in uh, tariffs and and stuff like that. Then it's like Jenny said, it's un, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen fifteen to thirty days down the road at this point. So Jenny, obviously, it's not just lumber. Um, I know you guys. Uh, I know you mentioned that you're not doing any high rises, but give me a little bit of background on on steel as well, because I think everybody is is. Yeah, familiar with the with the tariffs um, that the current administration put on uh, on steel. How how has that done over the past year? Well, we um, you know we import import our steel from Canada, Mexico, other areas of of Europe, and this is you know it's it includes structural steel, steel handrails, stairs. Uh, cables for post tension slabs. There are a lot of uh, you know a lot of areas that are impacted. Even though what we do is wood frame, we still still use a lot of steel. Uh, right. To be redundant there, but so obviously these tariffs, uh, you know, they're a threat. They're hanging over our head, and everybody is kind of poised, waiting to see how long they're going to last how high they're going to go and, and what the impact is going to be. And that's a little bit of an unknown right now. Um, we had the 25% tariff that was enacted and 
you know, there there are projections that it's going to go higher, but it's it's a bit of an unknown at this moment. And I know, you know, with with domestics still, obviously those those stock prices went up. But did you see any decrease in in the actual price of steel that's sourced in the U.S. versus versus abroad? Uh, you know, it, we're still a little bit too early. I'm not I'm not seeing that yet. But gotcha. Um, like I said, we do import so much, and um, it, it's it's a bit of an anomaly right now. I, I don't know how it's going to be impacted. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about the, the labor side, because there is a lot of development going on. And Chad, I think you I think you said it's it's not a buyer's market or a seller's market. It's a it's a sub in the development world. It's a, um, it's a developer's market or it's a or it's a subs market. And uh, right now it is definitely a subcontractor's market because they could pretty much choose and, and pick what jobs they want to do uh, and uh, a lot of times that ends up, you know, getting into uh, causing some other issues, which we'll talk about in, in a moment. But Jenny, I guess I guess we'll start with you. Um, what type of increases, you know, are you seeing in in labor over the past year? Well, that's that's a whole other topic, and it's it's increases, but it's also shortage of workers, and that's almost more critical than pricing, even because you know, no matter what you're paying, you still got to have the labor on the job to do the job and to meet the schedule and to keep the project moving forward. And, you know, as everybody knows, and it's been said repeatedly, when we had the downturn, a lot of our labor force went back to their native homes and they haven't come back as quickly. The market has, uh, you know, the the market has just kind of gone crazy the last couple of years with with product delivery and, and product being put into place. And the subs have been able to write their ticket because we just do not have the labor, the everyday labor. I'm not talking about the, the highly skilled side of it. I'm talking about the, the framers, the drywallers, the mm-hmm. painters, those folks. It's very difficult to, to man a job especially in student housing. In student housing, the schedule is everything. If you don't make your delivery date, I mean, it's a black mark on, on everybody. And the project itself, from a yeah. developer standpoint, could use a whole lose a whole year of yeah. revenue. So it is, it is critical. Developers and contractors alike have had to rethink schedules. We've had to make sure that we have a little bit more time in order to deal on the issues that we know we're going to have to deal with. From a contractor standpoint, those labor-intensive areas, we have to make sure when we go into a contract that we've got not only a contract, a subcontractor lined up, but we've got backup. Yeah, you've got you got to have a deep bench on top of. And uh, so it's it's tricky, and there's just a lot more risk going into it than than there historically has been. Yeah, so you know, I hear developers and and general contractors, you know, talk all the time, and it's been a lot more recently where, you know, a, a sub ends up not showing up because they got something literally down the street or closer to, to where they live, where someone came in and said, look, I'll, I'll pay you double what, what you're getting over there. 
And obviously that's a, that's a huge threat to everything that you talked about. Is there, is there anything either, either you or Chad, I'm sure you got something to, to ring in here with as well, but what, what would you guys suggest uh, in regards to how a developer can best protect themselves from that? Um, well, I would, I would say one of the things that we're doing a little bit differently that if you take, you know, the, the type of projects uh, that we're building now around 500 beds, those, those projects, uh, I would say typically would, could be start and finished on an 18 month schedule. And we would normally start a, start a project like that around uh, March, uh, February, March, April timeframe to be finished uh, for an August completion uh, prior to the opening of our school starting back. And we've sort of changed our thinking on that just based on the labor shortages and needing more time and schedules. So, you know, now what we would typically have an 18 month project, we're starting projects in uh, June, July timeframe and giving the contractor somewhere between 22 and 24 months to build that project. And, you know, it, 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 it relieves a little bit of the pressure on the contractor and it it minimizes a lot of the, a lot of the risk for not finishing on time. Um, So it just, I I think across the board, you know, hopefully that changes as like you mentioned before, as, as the the supply starts to go down, um, you know, then the the subcontractors will be looking for more work instead of picking and choosing which projects they work on. And yeah, I think one of the problems we have is, you know, building in, in different, uh, different cities across the country. And when I was a contractor here in, uh, in North Carolina, in the Southeast, I knew my subcontractors very well, and they were repeat subcontractors that we used over and over again on, on every project. But, uh, you know, when you go into a new market, like uh, where we are in Reno, You've got a lot of things, uh, the, the big Tesla plant being built out there, a lot of lot of different uh, large jobs that are being built. And you hear of stories of, you know, those guys coming to different job sites and offering more money per square foot or per piece directly right there on your job site. And your crews, like Jenny said, needing to have that backup those crews will find out they can make more money on another project. And, you know, the next thing you know, they've packed up and, and moved on to a different project. But that's a, you know, that I, I think that's another, another part of it as well. Well, and, and let me add just a little bit of value to, to our, uh, to our listeners who are operators, property management companies within the space, you know, as we're coming up on turn here in a few weeks, you know, I've been in that situation where I've had a vac- an active property, um, a stabilized operational property and there's, there's, you know, something new being delivered to the market. And, you know, the last thing that happens on, uh, on new construction is the cleaning. And, <laughs> you know, when you're in a, when you're in a market that is, um, uh, where you've got a very short supply, where do you think those general contractors are going to go to, to try <laughs> to try to find a last minute cleaner? If, if their cleaning sub backed out, um, they're going to show up on your project, and uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, those things have have been vetted. But uh, you know, I'm here to to warn people. 
I, you know, one, one thing that I that I see being an issue this year is you may not even have, um, you know, let's Chad where you're at in you know the the research triangle area of of you know North Carolina between you know with all the universities between Raleigh and and Durham and Chapel Hill. You know, if a new project's being delivered in any of those markets, and there's an issue with with cleaning subs, and you've got a lot of uh, cleaning vendors that are in those areas that are already doing projects, you, you know, you may have a a project in uh, you know in, in Durham that is uh, that's being, or you may not have a new project in Durham that's being delivered this year. Um, but somebody who's delivering a new project in Raleigh may end up showing up in Durham and saying, "Hey, let's." Yeah, you know, we've got new construction, and, and those those vendors love new construction cleans <laughs> compared to having to go into you know partially occupied <laughs> student mm-hmm. apartments and uh, and trying to clean that up. <laughs> so, so it, uh, you know, just to put a warning out there, if if you're a property manager and even though you've got all of your RFPs and and contracts signed off of, you need to make sure you're having that conversation with your with your subs that, you know, if they leave you high and dry, you, you may not be using them next year. So, um, and, and you anyway. on a point that I think, um, there's, there's repeating. It doesn't matter anymore. What kind of relationship you have with a subcontractor, you know, used to loyalty. I mean, you knew if you, if you had a contract with somebody, they were going to fulfill it. They were going to do everything they could to do so. We subcontract with, you know, with a sub, but that sub hires the labor crews. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how hard that sub may try. Sometimes it's out of their hands as to whether the labor crews show up today, if they show up on time, if they, you know. And so someone that you've been able to count on for years, even though they still may have what good intentions they're not able to deliver and you can't count on them being able to deliver like you used to be able to. Yeah. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, these higher costs that the general contractors are, are looking at. What, is there anything that, um, uh, uh, this question is really to, to both of you guys that developers and GCs are, are looking to in order to help mitigate some of these higher costs where they're, you know, they're now finding themselves, and I'm talking about a current project that, that you know, has already been funded and in the in the process of, and now all of a sudden, you know, over the past year, labor or lumber's gone up 47 percent, and the GC just says, "Look, we can't continue doing this at the original budget that that we projected, or we're going to have to go up." What what can what are you guys seeing to help mitigate uh, those those increases? Um, is there anything that how to offset the cost? <laughs> yeah, I mean, is have you seen anybody do anything to to mitigate those costs that you think is worth sharing with with other developers and and folks that are uh, that may be facing that that same issue as well? Usually, that is. You know, we try to vet it, vet that out as much as possible before we sign a contract. We try to anticipate what our risk is going to be. We work with the developer. Um, you know, have you have the dreaded VE uh, terminology? 
but we do work with the developers to try to see if there are areas that we can get some cost out without without losing the integrity of the of the project or the design. I know developers from their side, you know, they're, they're going to maximize the rents wherever they can, but, you know, rents can only go so high. Once the project gets started, then in most cases, the risk is on us to make it come in according to the contract, according to, to what we have contracted to do. Um, it's very difficult sometimes. And like I said, we have to go into projects with backup. We have to know how we're going to supplement subs when that issue comes up. Um, if there are material items that that we do know have a risk of, of going up during the course of the project, then that's something that we work out the risk with the developer in our contract terms. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there are some places where we're willing to share the risk. There are other places where we just can't. Um, but it, it all needs to be handled as cleanly as possible during the contract negotiations so that once the job gets going, everybody knows what we're doing and, and it's just, you know, everybody's on the same page and, and the goal is to get the project delivered. I'm not real sure if that answered your question, but I'm not, I'm not certain that there's a good answer to your question. Well, and I, yeah, I don't, I, I think you're exactly right. I don't know that there is a good, a good answer um, uh, or that there's a, there's an answer at all. Uh, Chad, any, anything from your standpoint on the development side that, you know, maybe you're, you're considering as a, as a project is you're starting to see in, increases that, you know, weren't there originally that, you know, obviously you had to pay them or the project's not going to be delivered right. um, where you're having to get creative and, you know, the team's having to get creative and, and figure something else out. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd mentioned a couple of things that, uh, that we're actually doing uh, for the project in Reno where we seem, where it seems to be impacting us uh, more than, more than anywhere else at, at this point. Uh, one thing we're looking at is, uh, you know, certain materials that, uh, like insulation, for example. I mean, what we would like to do is go ahead and and buy all the insulation. <clears throat> but if you start looking at how much insulation that is that goes into one of these buildings, it, you would have a, a, a huge huge warehouse to try to store this stuff in. But in some cases, you're able to you're able to do that and uh, have the contractor you know, rent some, some warehouse space or something like that for mm -hmm. certain materials that may be going up <clears throat> to go ahead and buy now. Another thing that we're doing is, you know, because like we mentioned before, you know, we, we always get the letters and the notifications when the prices are going up. The phone usually doesn't ring when prices start going down. Um, <laughs> so what we're trying to work on with the contractor out in Reno I mentioned the Tesla plant and the Tesla plant is one of the, uh, one of the causes of labor shortages out there. And uh, before our project finishes, <clears throat> that Tesla plant's going to be complete, which is going to relieve a lot of the, the pressure. To the the question market. is, is Tesla still going to be around? After, by right. that time? <laughs> um, but, you know, we want to, we want to, I guess, you know, maintain the opportunity with the, the general contractor to, you know, we want him to go ahead and issue subcontracts to it to his subcontractors and, and go ahead and get folks locked in. But as we see things starting to, to relieve, you know, six, six months, 12 months from now, 
we want them to, we want to have the opportunity to have them rebid certain trades um and you know think about stuff like sheetrock i mean we're it'll be a year from now before we start hanging uh sheetrock in some of those in some of those parts of those buildings so that's one example of you know maybe the drywall market is is up now when we're locking in and we want the opportunity to to revisit that <clears throat> prior to starting that trade and, so it's and we want to be able that on, on different, you know, with different trades. So it's, it's really just getting in at a granular level and, and analyzing kind of every little cost line item and saying, okay, uh, what else is going in the market? Uh, is there, are, are there any creative strategies that, that we may think of? Uh, that, that's really what you're, what you're kind of yeah, getting at, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cause like Jenny said, I mean, you know, from a, from a contractor, general contractor standpoint, once you go to contract, you're sort of locked in, and and you, you know it's up to the contractor to to help mitigate those risks with price increases, and <clears throat> I'm sure their their contracts with the subcontractors address that. And you know we're locking in at a certain price, and this is you know this is the price that you're going to do your work for. The, the problem is when we get something you know like we're discussing for our Reno project now on, on insulation there's no way to manage that. The contractor is, uh, is not going to take on that risk. Uh, so it's one of those things that, again, we're probably not going to need insulation for somewhere between eight, eight and 12 months from now. So it's, you know, it, we get, we have to go to contract knowing that there's the potential there for that material increase. And then we just have to watch that, watch that market and see, you know, are the increases actually happen happening? Is something happening to make those go down? And if they are going down, then, you know, we want to, we want to be able to recoup those, come back from those increases. Gotcha. So guys, kind of last question here. Um, let's put cost and expenses completely aside for, for this next question. Is there anything on the technology front, either from a material standpoint or, or from just, you know, a project management kind of application standpoint that you think developers should consider when choosing a GC? Chad, I'll let you go first on, on that one. Well, from a, and, and the ideas that come to my mind are more after the, after the project has started, like you're, you're mentioning about the, the photo documentation um, the only the other thing I can think of is just document control and how the how the contractor manages <clears throat> all the different communications and uh, you know RFIs and, and just really managing the the project. With I'm thinking something like Procore or different communication type technology that keeps record of things and without giving a I guess an advertisement for a company. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. I would agree with that. Um, there are definitely programs out there that <clears throat> enable the exchange of documents to be a lot more efficient. RFIs, um, information and tracking, uh, plan changes. Uh, but in that respect, technology has really helped us a lot from a GC standpoint. Our field guys can walk around and have a set of plans on their iPad rather than having to either carry around a big roll with them or run back to the job trailer every time they need <laughs> to look up something. And that's helped tremendously. Um, you know, that, that's been a real boost for us. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's whatever works to enable you and your team to get the job done. And 
uh, you know, there, there are different different strokes for different folks. And as long as you're delivering, I think I think technology is is good and it needs to be implemented where it can be, but it's not the be all end all. The guys the guys have got to work and get the job done. Yeah. Anything from any advances on any of the materials, uh, you know, maybe maybe any type of new flooring or anything that you guys uh, have have seen that you think is. I know, I know the designers probably have the interior designers probably have more of a say so yeah. in that. But any anything that you guys are, are seeing from that standpoint that you know, for example, Chad, I know on the project in Knoxville, you guys used. Uh, modular is not the right word, but for the parking deck, it was actually everything was poured as far as the concrete offsite. Is that the best way to say that? Or yeah, it's a um, <clears throat> precast concrete. It's fabricated in pieces offsite and then brought in and <clears throat> speeds the production up of the of the parking deck uh, for sure because they they basically come in and uh, that that particular parking deck uh, seven stories, I think close to around 500 spaces and from start to finish from the time they showed up until the time they finished building that parking deck was about I think eight weeks uh, versus if you were forming and pouring those walls on site you know it ties the site up and extends your overall schedule so yeah that's one thinking about finishes you know one of the other things that we look at is you know how can we help speed up the production and um, looking at flooring, for example, where a lot of times we have carpet in bedrooms and tile in bathrooms and uh, vinyl plank in the, in the living spaces, we're looking at trying to make that consistent throughout the units and just use the, like a vinyl plank everywhere. And then mm-hmm. it reduces the transitions. It reduces the time, you know, the different uh, cycles that the, the subcontractor has to enter into that apartment, so he can go in and, and knock an, an entire apartment out and, and be finished instead of, you know, coming in coming in like we're doing in Knoxville and putting <clears throat> sheet vinyl in the bathrooms, vinyl plank in the in the living spaces, and then we wait, and you know, just before we start finishing wrapping those units up we come in and put the carpet in so now they've made three trips into the unit instead of one so that's just one example of things that can be done to try to help speed up the process gotcha well guys it's i I appreciate it um again thanks jenny for for your time and and uh, chad has been great it's been great having you as a (laughs) as a co-host on this uh, guest co-host on this on this subject as well and i think um uh it will certainly go to to you know i think most developers and, and general contractors that that you know, probably listen to the show, know most of, you know, what you guys are, are talking about. But I do think for some of those that are on the operation side, getting a little bit better understanding of, you know, what's happening in the world of, of development and construction and, and the cost involved. Um, I think, I think we're all better for it. So thanks for, for sharing that with, with our audience and look forward to talking to you guys again. Thank you, Wesley. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope this helps explain some of the things in regards to construction costs. Um, Obviously, if you are a seasoned developer, you understand a lot of this and know what's going on. But I wanted to give some insight to the audience members 
who are not in the development world day in and day out. And and for those folks, I hope you really found some value in this. Um, again, thanks to to Jenny and Chad and for their help on this. And a big thanks again to our sponsor, AUS Furniture. You can check them out at www.theausway.com. Also, don't forget to go to our website, studenthousinginsight.com. Uh, again, that's studenthousinginsight.com and enroll in the SHI community. When you go to the website, it's up in the upper right hand corner. We've got some amazing announcements that are coming up, including our first ever conference, uh, which we will be getting into on the next podcast episode. So make sure in order to, to get the, the latest information, make sure that you go to the SHI community page and register there. All right, guys, I appreciate it again for for listening, and I hope I've brought you a lot of value. We'll talk next time.